Let's pray and ask for the Lord to send His Holy Spirit to us as we open His Word. Our gracious God and Father, we thank You in the name of our Redeemer, in the name of Your only begotten Son. We ask now that You would send Your Spirit to us. Help me to, to preach accurately and clearly. Help us to hear with eager ears. Help us to apply the truth of the Word of God, that you might sanctify us in the truth, because your Word is truth. We confess that we are urgently, desperately in need of your Spirit to work in us. We, we will not understand, we will not obey unless you work in us. Holy Spirit, will you please work among us through the ministry of your Word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As you're taking your seat, would you turn with me, please, to Psalm number 109. Psalm number 109. Last week, I, by way of introduction, we, we read the psalm, and I didn't do much of an exposition of it on, on purpose. It was an introduction to a small series, a short series on the imprecatory psalms. Perhaps you've, you've heard of that term. You certainly did by last week, if you have not heard it before. In the imprecatory psalms are a category of psalms. They're scattered throughout the Psalter that call upon God's judgment and condemnation upon his enemies. They call upon calamity. And sometimes those, when we read those kinds of words, they strike our New Testament ears perhaps as odd. When, when, we, when we hear and we read things in the Psalter like, knock the teeth out of their mouths, dash their little ones against the rocks, may their generations be desolate. And we think, how does that jive? How, does, how do we reconcile that with our Lord's clear commands to love our neighbors? Even to pray for those who persecute you. How do we reconcile those? Well, we start with the, with the presupposition that God's word is not contradicting itself. We know that, but yet we still need to reconcile these things. So these psalms, we're going to look at Psalm 109 as one example of these psalms of imprecation, these psalms of cursing. The title of this, of this sermon today is Clothed in Cursing. When I take the title from that section between 18, verses 18 and 20, we'll read here in a moment. But in last week's introduction, we saw that we have to acknowledge this tension. We have to acknowledge it freely. There is a tension here that we feel God does not. There's no tension in the mind of God, but from our perspective, it feels like there's a tension between the Lord's command to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us on the one hand, and this maybe shocking kind of language that comes out from time to time in the Psalms. But if we're honest, and we saw this last week, it's not only in the Psalms that we see this kind of imprecation. We see this even in the New Testament. In fact, we see it even from the very throne room of heaven in Revelation chapters 5 and 6. So we concluded that not only are these imprecatory Psalms Psalms in which the people of God pray for the destruction of their enemies. Not only may we pray those, but we ought to. We must pray the imprecatory psalms. These are useful for us as prayers to God in all ages. All Scripture is indeed breathed out by God, and it's profitable. One of the things that we saw last week, in order to understand the imprecatory psalms, understand really the, the full the full depth of the psalms in general, 
is to understand that we hear them in the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see this today. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who initially, from eternity, prayed the very prayer that David uttered in Psalm 109. As we study this example of imprecation, we we need to understand some some key truths that we draw out of the text to help us. If we're going to pray this, and and we should, what are the truths that we have to bear in mind in order to pray this as God intended for us to pray it? I'm going to give you three truths that we're going to look through today. The first one is that prayers of imprecation apply to the enemies of Christ and his gospel. The prayers of imprecation apply to God's enemies, not yours and mine. Secondly, the prayers of imprecation are designed to be a comfort to God's people. So if we neglect to pray this particular genre within the Psalter, we're neglecting a means of comfort that God has given to his people. Thirdly, prayers of imprecation stand as a warning. They stand as a warning to the enemies of God. So have those three things in mind as we read through Psalm 109. These are prayers against the enemies of Christ and his gospel, These are prayers designed by God to comfort your soul. And these are prayers that stand as a warning, a warning against God's enemies. Hear now the word of the living God, Psalm number 109. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, but curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O Lord my God, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. 
I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's notice here in the first place that these psalms of imprecation, and particularly Psalm 109, applies as a prayer against the enemies of Christ and his gospel. This is the first lesson we learn here. This is the first truth that we must keep in mind if we're going to, as we ought, to pray the psalms of imprecation as our own. We recognize that these are God's enemies against which we pray, not our own personal enemies, not our own personal adversaries. These are the enemies of Christ and his gospel. And here in Psalm 109, David prays, we're told here in the original inspired heading, a psalm of David. Now we're going to see later on, these are actually the words of Christ. But this is here is the psalm of David, speaking prophetically. He's prays against his, 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 he prays not against his own enemies, his personal enemies, but against the enemies of God. How do we know this? Well, there's a couple of reasons for this. Number one, we can look at the, at the events in David's own life. We can look at the historical examples for us recorded in the scriptures and see that this was, if, if we understand this as David praying vindictively, vengefully against his own enemies, it would contradict his own actions, his own attitudes in other places. I'll give you a couple of examples. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, David is, this is before he's become king, he's been anointed but he's not ascended to the throne yet. And Saul is hunting David like a dog. He's hunting him like an animal. And David has sent out spies. Saul has come to encamp against him. And David has learned that Saul is there. And he asks, is there a volunteer who will go with me into Saul's camp in the middle of the night? And a man named Abishai said, I'll go. So we see this in verse 8 in 1 Samuel 26. Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. See, David goes into the camp. Saul's asleep. Saul's captain of the guard is asleep next to him. You know where Saul's spear is? It's in the ground right next to his head. Saul is there for the taking. And Abishai, David's servant, says, now's your chance. God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. Let me at him. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or... He will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at the head and the jar of water and let us go. And you can read the rest of the chapter to see how those emblems factor into the exchange that happens next. But here's the point. David had a chance. 
His own servant said, now's your chance. Seize this chance to kill your enemy. The one who, who is legitimately trying to take his life. David said, no, this was, this was for the Lord to take that vengeance, not for me. It's another example. This is after David has become king. And his own son, Absalom, has sought favor with the people and has, has basically come to the point where David is being run out of town because Absalom has led a mutiny against his own father and king. And as they're going out, when King David came, this is in 2 Samuel 16, when King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shemaiah, the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David, and all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shemaiah said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into your hand and your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are of man of blood. Now don't miss the connection between those two events. This man is of the house of Saul, and he accuses David of having blood on his hands with respect to the death of Saul, which wasn't true, was it? Listen to David's response. Then Abishai, again, same man, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because... The Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, we have done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shemaiah went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. So David understood. David understood that he was not to seek personal revenge, even against legitimate adversaries, those who falsely accused him. David recognized the Lord will deal with this. Perhaps the Lord has sent him to curse me. Or... Perhaps the Lord will return this to his own head because of the evil done to me. Well, how does this help us understand Psalm 109's imprecatory language? In this way, again, whether we hear the voice of David only or whether we hear the voice of Christ himself, what we don't hear is personal vengeance. We don't hear the language of personal vengeance in Psalm 109. So this tells us as we pray, the words of Psalm 109. We, we must never pray this against our own personal enemies. This isn't the one who's, we don't pray this against the one who's done something evil to you in a business deal, or someone who's betrayed you personally, someone who's harmed your family, someone who's harmed your church. This is not the kind, it's not how we pray these prayers. But there's a second reason. There's a second reason beyond the example from the life of David that causes us to conclude that this is not just a, a prayer for personal vengeance. And that's because we understand that this prayer applies directly and specifically to the enemies of Christ and his gospel. And the second, the second reason is that the New Testament writers apply this psalm 
to the voice of Christ. In fact, the Apostle Peter says that David is prophesying here. That David is actually prophesying when he says these words. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 1. This this becomes very clear here. In Acts chapter 1, and you have to kind of imagine this scene and kind of put yourself in this position. The apostles have just watched their Lord ascend into heaven, but there's still some confusion. He's told them, wait upon the Spirit of God. And and they're they're wrestling in their mind. We were already told in, in Matthew's account that some doubted. Not an ultimate doubt, not an ultimate unbelief, but they're, they're still wrestling and trying to make sense of all that's happened. And in verse 15 of Acts chapter 1, it's that we're told that in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled with the, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now then Luke gives us, I'm reading from the ESV and it's in parentheses, Luke gives us an editorial comment here. Again, still inspired by the Spirit of God, but this is is not a quote from Peter. He says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. Peter continues, For it is written in the book of the Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be none, no one to dwell in it. Well, that's a direct quote from Psalm 109. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now, as an aside here, this is, this is an aside, but if anybody ever tells you that they, they know a modern apostle, we had a, a lady who visited, it's been probably a year ago, visited with us, and we we're at lunch talking, and she was part of a church, so well, we, we have an apostle. I said, no, you don't. Well, no, we do. No, no, you don't. And she said, well, how do you know that from the scriptures? And I took her to this passage, and she was unaware. But there's, there are qualifications given here for apostles. You have to be an eyewitness of Christ and his resurrection. That rules out any of us, doesn't it? That's just an aside. That's free. But the reason here that but Peter is actually saying This is a prophetic utterance given by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, Psalm 109, as it turns out, is a prophecy. It was was written by God, given to the Holy Spirit through David as an encouragement to David and to the people of that age. But there was a deeper meaning that even David wasn't aware of. Matthew alludes to this very same psalm in Matthew 27 as Christ hangs on the cross. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Again, a direct allusion to Psalm 109. So Peter applies this directly to the betrayer of Jesus Christ. Now turn with me back to Psalm 109, and I hope to help make another connection here. 
Here's the, the point we're, we're, we're laboring to make is that this psalm and all the psalms of imprecation are not given to us as personal prayers of vengeance. We saw that with the example of David, but we also see this here in the text itself. Look at verse 6, Psalm 109. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. That word accuser, in, in the original Hebrew, in the psalm, if you're reading this in Hebrew, you would come to that word, and the word is Satan. Our English transliteration is Satan. And that word appears six times here in the psalms, in Psalm 109. There's a recognition here. Peter says, by the mouth of David, the Holy Spirit prophesies that this is about Judas. But it's not even ultimately about Judas, is it? There's an accuser who's called to stand at his right hand. Beginning in verse 6, we see that the enemy portrayed, prayed against, is not merely a man, but evil personified. Evil in the flesh. It's the devil himself. And the Old Testament bears witness to this fact. In Zechariah chapter 3, through the Spirit of God, Zechariah prophesies this. He said, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. It's the very same word. In fact, the word's used twice in that sentence. Young's literal translation said, The adversary standing at his right hand to be an adversary to him. The Hebrew repeats this for emphasis. So the New Testament also tells us that Jesus knew very well, he knew very well that Judas wasn't merely some random guy. It wasn't as if Jesus chose the twelve and chose one poorly, or that Jesus was somehow surprised or caught off guard. In Luke 22, we're told that Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. But all the way back in John 6, all the way back in John 6, John records that Jesus knew from the very beginning who would betray him and why. So we come back to Psalm 109. This is not a prayer for personal vengeance. This is a recognition that there is an enemy behind the enemy, and there always is. In Revelation chapter 12, and verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accused them day and night before our God. So as you read, as you study, as you pray Psalm 109, and we should pray this, bear in mind that you pray through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you pray for the destruction of his enemies, those who unrepentantly oppose the gospel. So these psalms of imprecation are not prayed against our own personal enemies, but against Christ and his enemies. This goes all the way back to, to Genesis chapter 3 when God curses the serpent and says, you will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman and he will crush your head. There is this ongoing struggle, this ongoing 
um, antipathy between the serpent, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. We see this throughout from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We see this conflict. And of course, we know Christ has triumphed. When Christ rose from the grave, he, he put his enemies to open shame. And yet, we recognize there's still evil in this world. And when we pray the imprecatory psalms, it, it's a reminder there really is an enemy. But it might not be the flesh and blood that stands before us. There's something that animates those things, and it's against those forces that we pray. So there's a second truth that we need to apply here as well. Not only are we saying that these psalms are not against our own personal enemies, but against the enemies of Christ and his gospel, but also that we understand these prayers of imprecation to be a comfort to God's people. These could be a genuine comfort to us. This prayer is a comfort to God's people for several reasons. And the first, the first is because it reminds us of the covenant-keeping character of God. It reminds us of the covenant-keeping character of God. Look at Psalm 109. Look at verse 21. Those first 20, 20 verses deal with these false accusations. It deals with the, the prayers of imprecation, the request for God to judge his enemies. And then verse 21, but you, O God. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your namesake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. David makes his appeal to the very character of God. In the midst of all these accusations against me, in the midst of all these threats, and these are, these are not just a temporal threat, this is an existential threat against David and against the work of God. He says, but, but God, because of your nature, because of your character, based on your covenant you have made, deal with me justly. Look down to verse 26. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. That phrase, steadfast love, the, the, it's, it's translated variously throughout the Psalms. You might see it as mercy or steadfast love or faithfulness, loving kindness, it's the Hebrew word has said that, that encompasses all those ideas. It's a comprehensive concept that deals with the very character of God and the covenant that he has made with his people and the unbreakable nature of that. And David says, help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your mercy, your loving kindness, your steadfast love, your covenant-keeping grace. Let them, the enemies, know that this is your hand. You O Lord, have done it. When you judge your enemies, make it clear that you did it. This wasn't my own private vindictiveness. This was you who did this. Verse 28, let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers, here's the same word again, in the plural, may my Satans, may my adversaries be clothed with this honor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as a cloak. These prayers are a comfort to us because they remind us of the covenant-keeping character of God. We see who he is. We're reminded of who he is. Secondly, it's a comfort to us because it reminds us that God's word is true. It reminds us that God's word is true. These words are not merely an angry or desperate cry in the darkness of a man named David. They are far more than that. These words are prophetic. They are filled 
fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I referenced earlier in John 6, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And Jesus answered, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. From eternity, saints, from eternity, the Lord knew. God's word tells us that this was true. When we, when we pray the imprecatory psalms and we see these prophecies fulfilled, it's an encouragement to us to know that God's word is true. God is not caught off guard. God is not surprised. Judas' betrayal was no secret. It was no surprise to Jesus. Now, I'm sure it came with, with no small confusion to the other 11 apostles. I mean, imagine this scene. In, the, in that, kind of that first meeting after the, the apostles were, were selected by Jesus, and they're thinking about who's, who's going to be our treasurer? Who's going to carry the money back? And, you know, Matthew's got a history with money. Not a good one, though, does he? He's a tax collector. So they probably didn't trust him. He's the least. Well, Judas was the one they trusted. They put him in charge of the purse. And yet he's the one who betrayed. If you've ever, ever experienced a deep personal betrayal, you know it's disorienting. You start to question all kinds of things. What else have I missed? What else have I just gotten wrong about other people? Now you're looking sideways. I don't know about Peter or Matthew or Simon. I don't know. Do I even know anything anymore? Jesus was not caught off guard. Jesus knew all along because these words are his words, Psalm 109. The word is true. It means from eternity that Jesus knew who would betray him. So that's a comfort to us, that God, our sovereign Lord, is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, immutably, unchangeably. Thirdly, there's another reason that that we ought to understand these words as comforting to us, is because they remind us that wicked men and evil schemes will not ultimately prevail. As we pray the imprecatory psalms, it, it does something to our consciousness. It reminds us that wicked men and their evil schemes are not going to prevail. Because if all you do is watch the news, if all you do is scroll through your social media feeds, you might get to the point where your nails are, are eaten down to the quick, and you're saying, they might win. You ever thought that? You can admit it. Think, Man, maybe they're going to succeed in this. Praying the imprecatory psalms helps us to remember they're not going to win. They will not succeed ultimately. Look at verse 30. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Our Lord Jesus told his disciples, don't fear the one who can kill your body. Because you've heard me say this, all they can do is kill half of you and only temporarily. They can kill your body, which will rise again. They cannot touch your soul. Jesus, is, he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. The imprecatory psalms remind us that, that evil will not ultimately triumph. It's an essay by G.K. Jesterson called The Red Angel. It's a wonderful little essay, and he, he makes this comment about fairy tales. He says, fairy tales, then, are not responsible for producing in children fear, 
or any of the shapes of fear. Now, he's not talking about the sanitized fairy tales that most of you have heard. He's talking about, he specifically rep- references Grimm's fairy tales. Okay? Fairy tales do not give the child the idea of the evil or the ugly. That is in the child already because it is in the world already. Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of bogey. What fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the possible defeat of bogey. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. Exactly what the fairy tale does is this. It accustoms him for a series of clear pictures to the idea that these limitless terrors had a limit and that these shapeless enemies have enemies in the nights of God. That there is something in the universe more mystical than darkness and stronger than strong fear. Now, how much more does God's word communicate to us that there is a limit to evil? That there is an end to the violence? That God will say this far and no more? And we know evil exists, don't we? Because we know it's in here. First of all, we have to wrestle with that all the time. We also see it out there. We see the devastating effects of sin on the world around us, the people near to us. And and we are tempted at every turn to think enemies are going to prevail, that darkness will win, that evil will rule. And the imprecatory Psalms remind us that's not true. That's not true. God gets the victory. And the victory will be complete and total. So the prayers of imprecation apply, first of all, to the enemies of Christ and his gospel, not our own personal enemies, but also these prayers ought to serve as as a comfort to us as the people of God. They remind us of of who God is and his certain victory over all the forces of evil. But in the last place, prayers of imprecation stand as a warning to the enemies of God. And this is why, in particular, these prayers are not reserved for your own private prayer closet. They ought to be used in public worship. We ought to to pray them publicly. We ought to sing them. Because this is a warning publicly to the enemies of God. They stand as a warning to the enemies that if they will not repent and are not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, then the full weight of divine wrath will be poured out upon them. That's what the imprecatory psalms communicate. Look back at at verse 16. This is speaking specifically about Judas, but it's speaking about all those who are animated by the prince of this world. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted and put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat, may it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. May this be the reward. May this be the recompense. May this be the just penalty for their evil deeds. 
Notice here how the enemy of God is responsible for his own actions. We can rightly say he is animated. He is animated by an evil that is beyond himself, but he is responsible for his actions. He is responsible for his words. The wicked will not be able to claim on the day of God's judgment that I didn't know. I didn't know I was opposing Christ. They will not be able to plead ignorance on that day. And by praying Psalm 109, both we and our enemies, the enemies of God, are reminded that God will indeed, he will indeed punish sin. Luke records for us in Acts chapter 8 that some of the apostles had traveled down to Samaria because they had heard the Spirit was working in Samaria. Now, this was If you're a faithful Jewish person, this is mind-blowing, that God would work among the Samaritans. And Luke records for us in chapter 8 of Acts verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now a few verses later, Luke records this. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Listen to Peter's response. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Peter gives a curse here. May you perish with your silver. But he also offers him the hope of the gospel. If you will repent, if you will repent of the thoughts and intentions of your heart, two two important details to, to note. One, Peter was an apostle, having immediate revelation from God. He had a discernment with respect to the motives and intent of Simon's heart that you and I don't have. You and I can't look into one another's heart and know the motive or the intent. We can look at the at the actions. We cannot know the intent. Peter was given that insight here, supernaturally. But secondly, Peter nevertheless made it plain to Simon that unless he repented, he would surely perish under the just condemnation of God. This curse was a warning to Simon. Saints, one way or another, Christ is going to crush all his enemies beneath his feet. One way or another, it's right for us to pray for the destruction of his enemies. It's right for us to pray for them. Here's the catch. We don't know whom God has chosen to redeem. We don't know that. None of us do. Anyone says they do, don't believe them. 
So it is good for us both to pray for the destruction of the enemies of Christ and that he will redeem all that he has chosen. Can we pray both of those simultaneously? Yes, we can. Absolutely. There's no contradiction to that. Listen to this. When Stephen was being stoned, Stephen had given a speech. He recounted the entire history of Israel. You can read this in Acts chapter 7. And and after that, the Jews picked up stones. They were angry at him because Stephen made it clear it was you and your sin that crucified Christ. You've rejected your own Messiah. And they picked up stones. And a man named Saul stood there holding their garments and watched. And Stephen prayed as the stones rained down upon his head. And he prayed this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Saul, the murderer, was standing watching. And Luke tells us that Saul approved of this execution. And yet, two chapters later, you know what happens. Luke records Saul's conversion. This is in Acts chapter 9. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone on him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saints, for the elect, as we pray for the destruction of the enemies, for the elect, God will destroy them, but by the power of his mercy. Saul, as he formerly knew himself, is dead. He was crushed under the weight of the eternal grace of God, but destroyed nonetheless. Every conversion, every conversion is a violent death. Every conversion is a violent death of the sinful self. So when we pray, we can pray consistently. Lord, will you destroy your enemies? Not my business how you do it. One may be destroyed eternally in the lake of fire. Another may be destroyed by hearing and believing the gospel. If you're in Christ, saints, he's already done this to you. He has smashed in your mouth the teeth of your curses against him. He's torn out the fangs of your rebellion against him. He's dashed against the rocks the sins you once enjoyed. He has laid desolate your schemes of self-promotion and self-worship. He has trampled upon your pride and self-righteousness. Like stillborn children, he has made many of your sins never see the sun. That's how he's destroyed you. That's how he destroyed me. But make no mistake, it was a destruction. God is not doing remodeling projects. He destroys the old man. The old man is dead. 
and raised again to new life. To pray, and we pray this, thy kingdom come. You know what that is? That's an imprecatory prayer. See, we, we live in a world where everybody gets a trophy, but that's not the way the world really works. For Christ's king to advance, kingdom to advance, it means there is destruction of enemies before him. And all of us who are sitting here this morning as redeemed ones are fruit of the, there were spoils of that war. But make no mistake, death's occurred. The old man has been destroyed, and a new man raised in his place. We go on to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We recognize there is an enemy. There is an enemy. We ask the Lord to deliver us. Too many times when we think about conversion or we think about coming to faith in Christ, we have this sort of this sanitized, easy, smooth, gentle process in mind. But for many, that's not what happens. Actually, for none is that what happens. Some are more keenly aware because you've lived a life of, of sin and rebellion. You're more keenly aware of that which you were delivered out of. This is, not happens. this is not what happens when a sinner is torn from the claws of the ancient dragon, the serpent of old. It is a violent death every time. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, uh, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, I commend it to you if you haven't read it. She says, in the pages that follow, I share what happened in my private world through what Christians politely call conversion. This word conversion is simply too tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experience in coming face to face with the living God. I know of only one word to describe this time-released encounter, impact. Impact is, I believe, the space between the multiple car crash and the body count. I try in the pages that follow to relive the impact of God on my life. Conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. I sometimes wonder when I hear other Christians pray for the salvation of the lost, if they realize that this comprehensive chaos is the desired end of such prayers. Often people ask me to describe the lessons that I learned from this experience. I can't. It was too traumatic. Sometimes in crisis, we don't really learn lessons. Sometimes the result is simpler and more profound. Sometimes our character is simply transformed. One way or another, Christ is going to crush all of his enemies under his feet. And for you and me who are in Christ, we get to praise God that he crushed us here and now and raised us to walk in newness of life. He's made new creatures. He's made friends of enemies. So it's not our sphere of authority to know in, in advance what God and his wisdom will do. God is going to render to his enemies what they truly deserve, either everlasting destruction and torment, or the grace of life. But one way or another, that man's going to die. One way or another, that woman is going to be put to death. So our job is to pray. And a prayer of imprecation, such as we find in Psalm 109, is, is given to us by God to help us pray perfectly for something about which we are inherently flawed. If we just sit down and try to pray for our enemies, knowing well the sins that remain in our own hearts, how imperfectly are we going to pray? Either we're going to come up short and not, not pray sufficiently for their destruction, or we're going to pray with a, a vindictiveness. 
a lust for vengeance. So God in his wisdom has given us prayers that we can pray. The very words of Christ, he prays as our head, we as his body, and we pray these prayers. So we do not have to lean upon our own understanding, but instead we can acknowledge God's wisdom revealed to us in these imprecatory psalms. Because of the sin that remains in us, it's, it's impossible for us to pray really as we ought to pray. But if we're going to pray such words that we find in, in Psalm 109, we find in the other various imprecatory psalms, keep this in mind, keep these, these kind of three simple truths in mind. That this is not against your enemies or mine. God has not given this, this to us as a template for our own private grievances, but to pray against the spirit of darkness, the forces of darkness, against the enemies of Christ and his gospel. And we don't know which of those God has chosen from before the time began that he would redeem. We don't have to know that to be able to pray for their destruction. And saints, will you be encouraged as you pray this? Recognize here the covenant-keeping nature of your God. Notice the character of God that are revealed over and over. It doesn't matter whether it's Psalm 109 or Psalm 69 or 58 or any of the imprecatory psalms. You will see the character of God come leap off the page at you. But also, God has designed for us to pray these publicly because they are indeed a warning to the enemies of God that if you will not repent, if you will not turn, if you will not give yourself up wholly and completely to God Most High, He will crush you. Psalms of imprecation may be a wonderful blessing to the church rather than avoiding them. We talked about some of these things last week. Some have tried to explain them away. Some have sought to avoid them. Some have just tried to scratch them out of their Bible entirely. Some have tried to say these were, these were only prophecies. They're not something that we can pray. But we ought to pray them. And may God bless us as we learn to pray these psalms of imprecation for his glory and ultimately uh, for either the good or the destruction of our enemies. Let's pray. Father, you are so good and wise. We thank you for the kindness that you have shown to us, a kindness that is, that is given to draw men to repentance. We, we praise you that we have life in your Son. We praise you that, that we have these precious and very great promises, the certainty of our Savior's ultimate and final victory. And as we pray for his kingdom to come, we pray that you will give us hearts that desire to see men and women and boys and girls come to faith in, in Jesus Christ, to lay our lives down, to surrender our ambitions and our, our desires and everything attached to the old man and live as new men and women in Christ. And we do pray, Father, that you will destroy your enemies for Christ's sake and for the good of your people. Amen.